Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Boloris. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by VP and Research Director Glenn O'Donnell to discuss the causes and impacts of the ongoing chip shortage. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Glenn, can we blame this chip shortage on the pandemic or are there other dynamics at play here? We can partially blame it on the pandemic. You know, it was certainly an accelerant of the situation that was already building. Uh, the fact is, it's, this is a classic supply and demand issue. We've got a lot of demand for semiconductors and only so much capacity to make these things. And this was going on before the pandemic hit, but then the pandemic came along and it changed the dynamics of a lot of markets. You know, everybody was working from home, so PC sales shot through the roof. And you know, we got a lot of chips in PCs. Cloud services took off because everybody's at home Zooming and using other video conferencing, and the cloud providers needed more. Uh, so you know, this, this got exacerbated by the pandemic, but it is not purely to blame on the pandemic. Uh, one other situation we had, of course, during that is some of the factories had to shut down. And when you shut down a semiconductor factory, you can't restart it very easily. It takes a while. I even think about just remote learning. Um, I first bought my daughter a tablet to support her remote learning. That actually wasn't enough. And then I actually bought her another laptop as well. So we think about just uh, remote work and anywhere work, but I think about all the remote learning that happened globally and what you actually needed for infrastructure at home to really make sure that you got a great learning experience. Yeah, that clunky old PC just can't cut it anymore for these kinds of things. And you know, maybe you need a new a new Wi-Fi router, maybe you need a new internet connection in general. All this stuff has chips in it. So, uh, you know, more products like that equals more chips and, you know, you can only make so many of them. Were there other factors at play too? I mean, we've seen a lot of tr discussions about trade wars and imbalance of trade and um, threats of different bans. I mean, have any kinds of sanctions and bans and just issues around trade between countries come into play as well? Yeah, that, that's been a factor too. Um, we got the trade war with China. So many of these, manu uh, uh, the chips are, the manufacturers are American companies. So it's Intel, it's Qualcomm, it's NVIDIA, whoever. Uh, there's a lot of them and the most, most of them are American companies. So there are sanctions in China against companies using those products. And the Chinese saw this coming, so they stockpiled a lot of chips. You know, they would buy up all of the CPUs and all the GPUs as much as they could. And you know, that caused a big problem. Um, and as we go forward, if the, if the uh, trade war is not resolved, it is gonna continue to make this a difficult thing. And China itself has to step up and start doing more of its own manufacturing. But uh, yeah, the trade war is certainly a big impact. So what has the, the impact been to date? I'm assuming you can kind of look at that through a variety of lenses, like specific industries um, impacted more than others. Yeah, uh, as I like to say, anything that has a plug or a battery probably has chips in it. So, you know, all these products, a lot of things people don't realize uh, is impacted by this. You, you, you want that smart refrigerator at Lowe's. Well, you go on the Lowe's website and you see when you can get it and it might be three months from now. So product availability has, has been hit. You can't get what you're looking for. And if you can get it, you're gonna pay more for it. 
because good old supply demand economics, uh, if it's not available, it's going to cost you a whole lot more. Uh, so uh, this has, uh, you know, that that's where the impact has been. And it has been on a lot of products that people don't recognize as tech products. Your, your car is a good example. Try to buy a new car today, even something like a Ford F-150 pickup truck. You think, oh, that's a pretty basic thing. There are thousands of F-150 pickup trucks sitting idle. They can't ship them because they don't have the chips. And, you know, that was another thing that happened during the pandemic is, the car makers figured, well, nobody's going to be buying cars. We're going to pull back the uh, the orders from the chip makers. And chip makers said, okay, well, we'll make chips for Apple or somebody else. And then the car makers found that people really were buying cars and now they need the chips. Well, you can't turn around that quickly and start making chips for the automakers again. So uh, the automakers have been hit very bad. Has there been an actual impact on the overall economy is it large enough that you can actually see that level of economic impact? Yeah. And just you just viscerally think that it's going to have an impact, but we've actually been looking around and doing some research to try to quantify that. And you know, some of the big investment banking firms have been doing the same thing. Uh, I think it's Goldman Sachs says it's going to have a 1% impact on GDP. I think that's pretty conservative. I think it's going to be bigger than that. Because so many things are, are are impacted, so many products have these chips in them, and you know we don't have enough capacity to make more chips. That's the that's the big problem here. Uh, I think the chip makers were caught by surprise. They didn't understand that uh, the demand was going to be as high. And granted, nobody saw the pandemic coming, so that was a bit of a kick in the teeth. But <laughs> demand was increasing before, and the chip makers did not step up. Now they are. But it takes two years to build a new factory and about and about 20 billion dollars or 10 billion dollars per line. Uh, you know, it's this is not something you're going to do quickly. So we've we've got a bit of a of a problem here for a while. And beyond some of the obvious, like, you know, auto that you mentioned, um, and I think people immediately think about PCs and other IT infrastructure. Is there additional either industries or products that people just don't think about? Yeah, I mentioned appliances. You want the smart refrigerator? Well, maybe you'll have to go for the not so smart refrigerator right. uh, instead. You know, appliances are full of chips these days. Uh, game consoles. If you were if you're a gamer, uh, you're not going to get your game console, and that's going to be a big problem this this uh, holiday shopping season. Um, but yeah, lots of t- lots of products. Even some toys have chips in them, and that's going to be a problem. But uh, like I said, if it has a plug or a battery, it's probably going to be impacted at some level. I guess there's a question that in my mind, which is how much are CIOs aware of this problem? Have they connected the dots between this chip shortage with their own strategic IT initiatives? So, you know, if you're a CIO and you're helping your company through, um, uh, you know, potentially geographic expansion or you're going after new markets and suddenly you, you need to scale your ability to handle new customers uh, and new demands. Like, have you made that connection yet? Like that between individual buying decisions within IT, like just buying that server um, and your bigger initiatives within IT, whether that's innovation, new markets, geographic expansion, new digital touch points for customers, new digital experiences for, for customers. Like, have you, have they kind of connected the dots from those bigger IT initiatives all the way through to the back end? I think they're starting to, 
they weren't initially, but as as they're going out and trying to buy the technology solutions necessary to pull this off, they're starting to see some of those problems uh, materialize. And, and where where they might have needed data center capacity, that's almost a no-brainer now that they go to a cloud service. Again, let the, let the cloud provider worry about it. Um, instead of them dealing with it on their own. But we, we also see the more, you know, the more immediate things where, uh, you know, people want to support their employees working remotely. Well, they need a whole bunch of PCs. I recently had an inquiry with a CIO that, you know, they came and said, look, uh, we can't get this, uh, this PC that we uh, standardized on. And I won't say which vendor it is, but, you know, this XYZ PC, we can't get it. And I said, well, maybe you have to, you, know, you, you either have to go with a different configuration from the same manufacturer or go over to the ABC vendor, you know, the, com- the competition. Uh, that is, is again, an, a bit of an unsavory solution because to standardize on a platform is to make the operation more efficient. And if you start mixing things up again, now you've got, you know, 67 different configurations and that just complicates the operation. But, uh, you know, if you got to survive, you got to survive. Right. Yeah, because there's, there's, like we said, there's very specific things you can do to sort of ease the pain of the chip shortage itself. But I, I feel like maybe what CIOs need to do is almost look at their core IT initiatives and their roadmaps for the next two to three years and reevaluate them in light of the chip shortage and really identify what 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 the risk is to that roadmap. Yeah, because because this is going to be a long lasting event. If this was just a few months, that wouldn't be a problem. You can get by. But uh, yeah, you know, they're not going to be able to uh, to do much next year. This is something that they have to reevaluate for sure. Interesting. I've seen some some articles recently, um, and even just general discussion where some national governments are actually viewing the chip shortage as a national security issue. Yeah, here in the U.S. especially, uh, because as you look at the numbers of where things are actually manufactured, as I said before, most of the companies that um, that are chip companies are American companies. But if you look at where these things are made about just shy of 80% are made in Asia, most notably Taiwan and South Korea, but other places also. Uh, that's, that there's, a, there's an imbalance to the supply chain. And this is one of the things that we did see exposed in the pandemic, that everything coming from Asia caused some serious hiccups. Nothing against Asia, but having too much of anything in one place is a problem. So now we are seeing uh, a pretty strong move to better diversify the geographic uh, coverage. Uh, There's going to be more here in the U.S. Intel and TSMC, which is the big uh, Taiwanese chip maker, have both announced they're going to build more capacity in Arizona. Uh, We have more capacity being built in Oregon and more in the European Union, uh, you know, various places. So we're, you know, we see everybody trying to rebalance that uh, supply chain. And naturally, the governments, wherever you go, see this as a national security thing, because uh, if we have to get our chips from other countries, then what happens if there's some kind of geopolitical crisis? Um, We are not going to be able to get the chips, and that will impact a lot of things, including military equipment. So you see the legislation in the infrastructure bill out of Washington, similar legislation going through the European Union. To, uh, to try to increase more and more capacity in those geographies. And it's coming. 
but it's going to be about two years. So is that the main efforts that the industry and governments are doing? Chip makers are just boosting capacity as quickly as possible. Yeah. And then we, we see a ton of government investment. Is, is anything else, can anything else help in this situation to improve the supply chain? Ironically, if we if we see inflationary pressures continue, and you know everything's getting more expensive, if inflation gets out of control, that's going to put a damper on demand. So that will actually help the problem because with less demand and the same kind of supply, we can close the gap on that uh, on that shortage. But uh, you know, for the time being, we just have to wait it out, honestly, and. You know, governments are spending a lot of money, you know, tens of billions of dollars of government spending, but you can spend all the money you want. It's not going to build a, a chip um, factory any faster. It still takes two years to do it. And, and that's the problem. We're stuck. We're stuck at, at a finite level of, of capacity to make chips. They're running, they're running flat out, but we need more factories. It doesn't solve the short-term problem, but there's also a limited number of manufacturers. I mean, does any of the government investment actually encourage new entrants to the market? Is that even possible, given the level of investment that's required in new factories and just to also just maintain everything? Yeah, that's a good, you, you bring up a good point is, is anybody even interested in getting into this business? Because the capital expense of doing it is just outrageous. Uh, and that's why there are only a, a handful of manufacturers that can do the most advanced stuff today. Um, you know, it is Intel, it's TSMC, it's Samsung, and frankly, though, you know, not a, not too many more can do that highly advanced stuff. Um, so, is anybody else going to get into the business of actually making the chips? I, I'd be hard pressed to see anybody do it. You know, there are others, and the Chinese, the Chinese are certainly gearing up uh, because they see that they need to. So we may see one or two uh, more semiconductor manufacturers out of mainland China, uh, but yeah, it's it's not the kind of business you want to get into. <laughs> you know, you need just tens and tens of billions of dollars just to get into the business. Yeah, it's interesting too. the The other discussion that I've seen come up quite a bit is um, I've seen some in national government also raise the question about the security of the chips themselves. Like somewhere in the supply chain, could a cybersecurity threat or other kind of security threat be introduced to the chip during the manufacturing process. And essentially now you have a very, very um, granular backdoor um, into all of this computing infrastructure. Do you think that's overblown, a little bit of um, cyber risk paranoia, or does that actually become um, a new requirement for these chip manufacturers as they start to build out their new capacity? Is sort of proving the security of the chip itself. Is, is that a real threat? I think it's less of a threat than most people make it out to be, but the fact that it's even possible is cause for concern. And, and there were some stories about, you know, so-called spy chips being installed in, in equipment. Uh, you know, there was a story that came out and just freaked everybody out and it was completely bogus, but it got people understanding some of the, some of the vulnerabilities we have in the supply chain. And government leaders, you know, military, those kind of people, of course, they worry about that stuff. And I actually have a friend who works in a military semiconductor operation. And, you know, basically, you know, they sell to the military and the military is just not allowed to get anything, even raw materials from countries that we see as uh, as potential enemies. You know, so these guys, these guys got a lock on that market. Yeah, I think a lot of people do view these 
hardware level backdoors is, is, as you mentioned, they're very hard to detect, so they're practically invisible. So even though they're low probability, the impact could be very, could be very high. And I think for the specific industries, that combination, like low probability, but high impact makes them very wary. Yeah. And and there are people in Washington and other, other centers of government who are clearly worried about that and they should be. You know, their job is to be paranoid about stuff like that, because even if it's possible, you know, it may not be happening, but even if it's possible, they have to deal with it. And, you know, this is clearly a possibility. So as we think about the typical enterprise buyer, and if we switch gears and we think back to like enterprise IT or even anything digital, like companies thinking about how they're going to build new, unique experiences for for customers with di- digital technology or you think about edge i mean like you said everything's going to have a chip in it knowing that there, there's we have to deal with this issue for a while i mean what can buyers do now yeah and you, know, you, you mentioned edge and and uh, i think one of the areas that is really fueling the demand uh even before the pandemic but certainly going forward is the fact that we've got smart everything you know your doorbell has a camera in it you know uh, everything's connected to the internet. Your TV can spy on you, <laughs> and, and, and all these things that are out there. And you know this this so-called Internet of Things and its companion market around edge computing is just enormous and taking off like a rocket. So the fact that we can instrument just about everything means that we do have uh, a, a real crisis uh, on a broad basis. So what can people do about that? Well. One thing is, of course, you can pay more money, and that's that's not a that's not an attractive proposition. But frankly, none of the uh, alternatives are all that attractive. You're either going to pay more, or you're going to have to go with a substitute product. And and even some small manufacturers are struggling with this. Uh, you know, the chips that they have been using in their designs are no longer available, so they need to redesign their product to use a chip that is available. And that's going to raise the, the price of that product. So you pay more, you wait longer. Uh, you know, all of these all of these alternatives are not all that attractive. And one one that is surprisingly catching on uh, is is this notion of refurbished equipment. You know, you need a PC. You can't get the one you're looking for. Can you buy one that's been refurbished, or can you can you kind of chug along for the next two years on on the boat anchor that you're using now? Uh, many people are doing that too. That's interesting. There's almost um, support then for the circular economy in this scenario, which is just encouraging. Like you mentioned, like I mean, there's a huge industry for recycling and refurbishing tech equipment that larger enterprises have decommissioned, um, but that smaller enterprises, particularly all over the world, are willing to buy. So you're you're keeping it out of landfills, um, especially IT equipment is full of uh, toxic waste in it. You're keeping it out of landfills. You're participating in the circular economy. Um, and hopefully maybe you're getting yourself out of the chip shortage issue. Yeah, it's, it is a, it is a defensive move for the, for the chip shortage problem, but it is also something that helps in, in, in a small way, but notable way helps us save the planet. You know, a lot of people don't think, well, all right, when this PC is dead, what do I do with it? You don't want to put it in a landfill. There's a lot of heavy metals and other toxic materials that you don't want going into a landfill. So there are companies and many of the large tech companies have these so-called circular economy uh, programs going on where they recycle old equipment and resell it. It's it's a pretty big business and it has suddenly gotten bigger. So yeah, good point that you brought up there. 
Yeah, I mean, it's actually interesting. I mean, I think particularly in the U.S. and in Europe, these these the the large circular economy vendors do. They, they, I mean, they actually make billions, but most of the equipment is actually destined for other parts of the world, yeah. Latin America, Africa. But I, I wonder if this will potentially spur um, companies in North America, in Europe, to consider refurbished equipment as well. I, I, don't, I don't think they're going to have any choice because we've got this problem for at least two more years. And uh, you can get by with, with what you have for now and maybe make a few other uh, adjustments. But at some point, you're going to probably have to buy some of this older equipment. It's also fueling some more interest in moving to the cloud. Basically, what you're doing is you're kicking the can down the road to the cloud providers. Let them worry about the semiconductor shortage. If I can't get a server for my data center, well, I'll, I'll let AWS or Microsoft worry about that and use their, their services. Something you said about edge commuting and, and IoT, I mean... Is the ship shortage going to impact the acceleration or decelerate that market? Because, you know, if everything is supposed to be quote unquote smart and connected, I would imagine there would be some impact, but is it big enough? Yeah, we haven't made any forecasts about smart devices, but I will I would say that the you know, whatever forecast we would have made, we would have to adjust it slightly downward. Uh, it is it is going to have a uh, negative impact on the growth of that market for sure. And, and like I said, maybe you won't be able to, you won't get the smart thing. You have to get the not so smart thing. Something you said too, you said it a couple times uh, in the podcast is worth drawing out a little bit is a couple years. I, I think you know earlier this year I had seen um, you know a number of like news pundits say, okay, we're we're in a bit of pain right now, but it'll be fine by the fall. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious, like, is that our, is your position that this is actually two years at least to get out of the, the shortage? It is at least two years. And, and mainly because of that need to build more factories. You know, you can't build a factory in a couple of weeks. And even once, even, you know, it's going to take two years. And like I said, about $10 billion to build one, one of these factories or fabs as they're called, a wafer fab. So if we don't have the capacity now we, we just broke ground on these things earlier this year. So we're looking at 2023 before we can see any material relief here. Um, and then once those factories are up and running, it, it's, a, it's a slow process. You put sil- you know, raw silicon in one end, basically sand, in one end of the, of the factory and chips come out the other end. That's about a three-month process. And you can't speed that up either. So um, that's, that's why we've got this, this long delay. And People are going to be dealing with this through 2023, and it could get worse before it gets better. Um, you know, we're going to see if demand keeps growing, uh, we could see this problem get worse next year, and prices will go up even more than they already have. Uh, availability, wait times will will get longer, and we will see relief in certain industries. You know, the automotive industry got a lot of media attention lately. And because it's such a big part of the global economy, uh, the chip makers are sort of being forced to respond and deliver chips to the, to the automakers. But if the car makers are getting chips, someone else isn't. There's a finite supply. So uh, it's going to impact somebody else. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today, Glenn. No, thank you very much. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, 
Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.